Well, I think we've all been in the situation before where we're driving along and we see someone broken down by the side of the road. And then we're like, well, what do I do? They kind of look like they're on their cell phone. It's a nice day. Maybe they wanted some vitamin D in the sun. They don't really look like they're in that much trouble. You start to feel the nudge of maybe I should stop and help them or maybe I shouldn't. For some of us, 115 excuses come to mind as to why we don't need to do that. For others, we stop. We offer assistance. And sometimes we can help. As bad as things can seem in our culture, I'm always surprised as to the kindness of strangers indeed to help those in need. There's something inside us that compels us to help other people. And, and we know as believers and people in a biblical worldview that that is the Imago Dei. That is the image of God that is stamped on our soul that says, care for one another, that says, help one another. But I would argue that there is a deeper compulsion that we need to look at in order to help others. And that is, it's our responsibility. That as fellow human beings, but also certainly people who live under God's rule, as God's children, it is our responsibility to help others. It's our responsibility, church, over and above that, as we do answer to a higher calling, as we are citizens of another kingdom, we are commanded to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You're commanded to love each other with everything that we have as much as we love ourselves. And we all know we love ourselves a lot because we spend a lot of time taking care of ourselves and making ourselves comfortable. We have a responsibility to meet physical needs. We have a responsibility to meet spiritual needs with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that, we connect with something far greater than we could ever be. And that is the power of God himself. And so it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit will impress that upon our hearts this morning as we look at perhaps the most famous miracle of Jesus during his earthly ministry. So I, I am thinking you are already in Matthew chapter 14, but if you would go there with us, we're in Matthew 14, 13 through 21. If you're visiting with us, which many of you are, thank you so much. We've had so many visitors these last couple weeks. It's great. I'm working on remembering all your names. I think I did pretty good today. I'm like four, four for four or five for five so far, so I feel pretty good about that. I worked really hard on that this week. But we preach through the Bible here. What we do is called expositional preaching. And so when I come to the text, I expose, hopefully, the meaning of the text. And so hopefully the main point of my sermon should be the main point of that text. That's expositional preaching. The other kind of preaching is eisegesis, where you're reading into a meaning of a text. You come to a text with a, I'm gonna, everybody's going to laugh because this is my joke, right? You're going you're to come to it five ways to how to have a happier Monday, right? And you're going to try to find all of these verses that support this idea that I had somewhere during the week. That's not what we're going for here. We're going to learn the meaning of Scripture, and then we're going to do the really hard work of applying the meaning of Scripture. Last week, we zoomed in on the martyrdom of John the Baptist at the hands of Herod Antipas. John the Baptist was imprisoned, and he was executed because he stood up for the law of God against evil. And as disciples of Jesus, we should remember that we're to both expect resistance, we're also to resist evil. How do we know what's evil? Whatever we feel like, wrong. No, we know it's evil because of what's here. This is what tells us what's evil. The Bible is our guide, his holy word. Ultimately, that requires that we be people of integrity. 
that we live what we say. That these words that we sang, tough words and oh great God, right? We sang those words that we actually walk out those, that door and we live those words. Has anyone noticed it's getting more difficult to be a Christian in 2020 America? We're not as 2021 America. <laughs> it was hard in 2020 too. It's even harder in 2021. We get those looks more often. We feel more resistance more often. Let's see things for how they are, church. Let's see that times are changing. Let's be prepared. Let's expect to resist. Let's expect resistance, but let's do so under the banner of the Word of God. That doesn't mean that we don't get overwhelmed from time to time, right? We see the events that are going on in the world, and it's hard not to get discouraged sometimes. We have things that we have in our own lives. We have loss. We have sin struggles. We have conflicts. We have all of that, and that tends to overwhelm us as well. And what do we do in those situations when we get overwhelmed? Well, our Savior shows us that he gets away. And look at verse 13 again in Matthew 14. He says, now when Jesus heard this, this is Matthew telling us, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And so we connect this first with the previous passage in context. Jesus heard what? What is the this? The this is that John has died. So he's heard that his cousin, his forerunner, the greatest prophet, has been executed by Herod, the crazy maniac, and now he is grieving. He is upset. He is mourning the loss of his friend, and so he tries to get away to a desolate place by himself. He's upset by the news of this. And the grief in and of that of Jesus highlights his dual nature. Right? We see that Jesus, if you're new to this whole churchianity thing, right? we believe that Jesus, ever since the Bible, but through creeds of the church and all of that, we identify Jesus as having two natures. He is truly God. The Bible really does declare that Jesus is God in the flesh, and we believe that here with all of our might. But it also declares that Jesus is truly man, and we get to see that here. We get to see that Jesus, even though he knew he was, this was coming, even though he knew the risks and all of that, he is saddened by the loss of his friend. Jesus, our great high priest, experiences the emotions that we feel. And we're going through Hebrews again with the men on Wednesday mornings at the diner, and we've come up to that time and time again. He has to be man, and he has to be God. He has to be man in order to represent us as our, as our federal head, as our sacrifice, in order to pay for our sins. But he also has to be God in order to be perfect and eternal and be that sacrifice for us. Hebrews reminds us that we do not have a high priest that's unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one that has been in every way tempted as we are, without sin. Jesus knows. Church, if you're struggling this morning with grief and loss and still working through all that, Jesus knows what that feels like. Our passage has just told us that. Jesus knows what it's like to lose a loved one and to work through grief. Take heart, be encouraged. Jesus, and therefore God himself, knows what this is like. A few contextual notes on this first verse to kind of set the table here. One, Jesus probably isn't totally alone. We're going to realize in a moment that the disciples are with him, probably in that same Galilean fishing boat and tried to get over to the other side. So they're all together. He's probably headed out of the territory of Herod because it's gotten a little hot out there. So he doesn't really want to be around Herod right now, just in case Herod wants to keep going with his maniacal, murderous rampage that he's on and chopping people's heads off. 
And third, this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospel accounts. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And therefore, it's really important. I mean, all the Bible's important, don't get me wrong. But this is important because it's repeated four times. So Matthew tells us Jesus withdrew by boat to a desolate place, and we're going to have the luxury of then calling in all these other witnesses, uh, Mark, Luke, and John today, to give us some more color. So, so John tells us that he went to the other side. And so if we have a little map here, he went to the other side of the lake of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus was in Nazareth, as we remember for a couple chapters ago. He's been making his way all around Galilee, all right? He's been making his way all around Galilee, doing his ministries. That's why Herod is the, the ruler of Galilee. And so Jesus probably ended up in Capernaum, which was one of his big hangouts. And, and as best we can tell, maybe he went across to Bethsaida or something like that. We don't know exactly where we, he went, but most guys think he ended up in the other side of the lake at Bethsaida. And Jesus, again, is also not truly alone because what have we learned there are thousands of people who have seen Jesus and his disciples get into the boat. And they quickly surmise, he's going on the water. He must be going to the other side. And they quickly run a 5K to beat Jesus around to the other side. So thousands of people now are on the other side. They figured out he's going to the other side. And they're like, let's beat him there. And think about it. All Jesus wants to do is get away. He has to be physically exhausted by this point, ministering to people, healing people. Those are emotional things that exhaust us when we help other people. He's just lost his friend to martyrdom, to gruesome execution. He's grieving. He's hurting. And he pulls closer to shore. And what does he see? Thousands of people waiting for him waiting for him to serve them. And how does he react? Look at verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he got in the boat and turned right around and went back home because he could not possibly deal with that. He just said, I just can't. I can't right now. He did not say that. He went ashore, saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. He didn't see the crowd. He didn't stomp his feet and roll his eyes and go to his disciples and say, can you believe this? Can we just get a break for five minutes? You know what we've been through, and now there are thousands of people who want me to do more tricks for them. They want me to heal them. They want me to do everything for them. But that is not what our Savior does, church. That is not what he does. True confession time, that's probably what I would do in my sinfulness. I would probably just be overwhelmed at that moment in my sinfulness and my selfishness. But not Jesus. Matthew tells us that he had compassion on them. And he immediately started ministering to them. He started healing their sick. sick. And again, in the, the other accounts in Mark, Luke, and John, John is probably most detailed. He tells us more information. So if we head over to John chapter 6, oh, the gospels say I have all mistakes. They're all contradictory. The Bible tells different things. It's full of mistakes. We can't trust it. False. It's just different accounts, different color, different flavor. We have the luxury of this. It's intentional. 
John 6 says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because, catch this, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They're not following him just to be with him. They're following him because they want him to minister to them. They saw everything he was doing, and they want him to keep doing it. So they're bringing sick people to him. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. They want more signs. They want more miracles. They want more healings. Do things for us, Jesus. Help us. Jesus has compassion. In Mark's account, Mark's account tells us that not only did Jesus start healing, but he also started teaching. Look at Mark 6, starting at verse 30. The disciples returned to Jesus and told him all that had done and taught, all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Watch this. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. That's the kind of schedule they were doing. They couldn't even eat. They were so busy. And they went away to a boat, to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore... He saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. So not only is he healing them and engaging with them personally, now he's teaching them. He's engaging them. Teaching is, when I'm done preaching, I, I'm usually really happy and, and depending on how it went, right? They're usually really happy, right? But I'm also dead tired. Like I want to lay down. It, it's exhausting, and that's Jesus then just continues, continues to minister, even though they haven't even had time to eat. So let's put this together. Jesus, his disciples, they're dead dog tired. They're overwhelmed with grief and with people. They try to get away. They can't get away. There are thousands of people waiting for them, and Jesus reacts by having compassion on them and engaging them and ministering to them. Literally, our word compassion here in the Greek means it's, it's from the gut, it's, it's from your insides. It's that feeling that we get in the pit of our stomach when we know we need to do something, when something moves us. It's an emotional, visceral reaction. We're moved to pity. We're moved to sympathy. And he's moved to pity and sympathy on all of these people that are waiting for him right now. He wasn't irritated. He wasn't annoyed. He wasn't upset. He'd been inconvenienced with his plan of getting away and resting. He had compassion. He gets right to work. People work, all driven by what? Compassion. Not just compassionate feelings, but compassionate action. And so I'll say this. Compassion should lead us to action. Compassion should lead us to action. God created us as emotional beings. We feel, we see things, and we react with feelings. We see evil, and we react with anger. We see a beautiful newborn baby, we react with joy. We react with, aw, you know, all of that, right? Though we're feelings-based beings, feelings can't drive the bus. That's what we've got to remember. These feelings are a gift from us to clue us in on what's going on in our heart, but they, we just can't just always be reacting on our feelings. We can't live an emotional, emotionally driven life. Emotionally driven Christians are shallow Christians. They don't have much depth, much root to them. Yet when we see needs, we should feel compassion. 
And we, sh- we should be motivated to action. Jesus feels compassion. We read it in Mark's account, I believe, but also in Matthew 9, 36, that Jesus saw the people as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So think about it. Why do you feel the way you do about certain things? Why do you feel the way you do about the things that you see? Ultimately, again, it's, it's because we're created in the image of God, and he stamped that on our souls. So when we th- see things that God loves, we rejoice in that. We, we're happy about that. When we see things that God hates, like evil or oppression or somebody hurting someone else or a natural disaster, we're moved because God is not sinful at all. But we see Jesus taking action despite how exhausted, despite how overwhelmed he is, he engages. He ministers to them in teaching and healing. And church, we've, we've usually got a couple different people on different sides of the spectrum here, right? And, and some of us are over here where it's like, I am going to save every single person in the entire world. I'm going to meet every single need. I'm going to help every person until it hurts and I burn myself out so that I am no good to anything else or anybody else or my family or anything. Don't be over here. Don't be over here. You're not the junior Holy Spirit. There's no more room in the Trinity. All the jobs are filled. Okay? You are not Jesus, the second person in the Trinity. You cannot save anyone. Drop the Messiah complex. Okay? You can't serve and save every single person. You will kill yourself. And your life in the process. So we have to remember that. We also have people on the far end of the spectrum that it's like, i am just got my blinders on. It's just me. I'm just worried about me. And our world screams this, does it not? Our world screams, put your earbuds in, watch your Netflix series, whatever. Don't engage with anyone. Don't talk to anyone. It's just about us. Our world screams an isolationist identity. Don't be over here either. The point is we've got to be in the middle. We've got to have compassion that motivates us to take appropriate action. We heard about the persecuted church last week and the International Day of the Persecuted Church. What did we feel? Hopefully we felt compassion. Hopefully we heard about tens of thousands of people being imprisoned in North Korea just for their faith or, or being in Afghanistan and being, uh, having a death warrant on you because you identify yourself as a Christian. Hopefully we felt something. Where does that lead us to action? Do we get on our knees and do we pray for the persecuted church? Where's the action? Do we send them money through Voice of, voice of the Martyrs or something like that? Do we talk about it with our friends and families? Do we pray about it with our families and our kids? Do we support missionaries to go to those places? Are we called to go ourselves to some of those places? Compassion is good, but it can't stop in feelings. It's got to go to action. It's got to go to appropriate action. Do we take action to minister to people when when we see that they are hurting? One of the things I absolutely love, and I love a lot of things about Highlands Bible Church, but one of the things I absolutely love about Highlands Bible Church is when you guys stop and pray with someone. When somebody's sharing something with you and you kind of give it the old Christian, I'll pray about that, and then you sip your coffee and walk away, right? Or do you stop right there and pray with someone? I love seeing that. I absolutely, the, the elders love seeing that. Please continue to do that. So when you're sharing with someone and you feel that need, you feel that, right? You feel that compassion. Where's the action that follows from that compassion? 
Do you pray for them right then and there? Do you have any needs that you can actually meet for them right then and there? Ask the Lord, what am I supposed to do? What action do you want me to take here? Let him show you. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's more. When you see a need that you can meet, you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit, let this challenge you. Just do it. Just meet it. Give the gift card. Offer them a ride, whatever it is. Invite them over for dinner. Meet the needs of the church with compassion that should be led to action then, or should lead to action. It always involves some form of sacrifice, right? That's just kind of what stops us. It's like, eh, I don't want to say anything too, too intrusive. I don't actually want to do something. Football's on today, and I don't really want to, you know. Just, it, it, it always involves some form of sacrifice, does it not? And we have to because that's our responsibility, church. That's where Matthew goes next. Look at verse 15. soon as I find where I'm preaching from. There it is. Matthew 15, 14, starting in verse 15. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages to buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And so here's the deal. Jesus has been ministering to them probably all day Evening is at hand. The disciples come up to him and say, hey, boss, uh, it's like dinner time. It's going to be dinner time soon. These people, irresponsible as they are, they did not bring any lunch with them. So why don't we just, you know, back off the preaching, the teaching, the healing for a little while, cut them loose, call it a day, let them head into town to go to Chipotle or McDonald's or wherever they're going to go and let them feed themselves. In John's account, it is Jesus himself that brings up that subject. Look at John 6, verses 4 through 7. And there we read this detail. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, meaning there's even more people than usual in and around that region. In verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii is not going to buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. What do we see here if we back up and, and take this apart, right? I love this. Jesus himself is like, hey, wow, a lot of people here. Crazy, huh? Hmm. How are we going to feed them all? Philip's totally triggered. He's to what? How are we going to feed them all? Are you serious? A whole year's pay is not going to buy each one of them a French fry. Like, you need sleep. That's what you need because you're talking crazy. There's no possible way that we can feed this. And the whole time, Jesus is chuckling to himself because he knew he was going to put him in a corner because he knew what he was going to do. Matthew tells us that Jesus immediately shoots down the notion of releasing the crowds to go find something to eat. And actually, this is a pretty big deal. I think some guys make a bigger deal out of this than really is. I don't, think, I don't know that anybody's in danger of starving to death here, but they certainly have a crisis. Right? They certainly have a crisis. And spoiler alert, we're not talking about 5,000 people because at the end we're going to say it's 5,000 men plus women and children. So we're talking upwards of 10,000 people plus 
that now need dinner. That's, that's certainly a crisis and certainly something that is stressful. And Jesus places the responsibility to feed 10,000 plus people where? Squarely on the shoulders of the disciples. He says, guys, they're not going anywhere. I'm not sending them anywhere. You give them something to eat. This is you. Can you imagine the stunned silence of the disciples? We, what? We give them something to eat? have this kind of food? What is he talking about? Jesus points out the ugliness of the disciples' heart here in refusing to take responsibility for what has happened. They just want to push it right back onto the crowd. Say, it's their fault. They should have thought of that before they took off with the 5K. Like, they should have brought food from home. This is not my problem, Jesus. Don't put this on me. Jesus says, no, it is on you. You give them something to eat. It's not their problem, guys. It's your problem. You give them something to eat. Compassion should lead to action, and action is driven by responsibility. Action is driven by responsibility. This highlights the need for us to be informed of our responsibility before we act. This is why Christians should not be just acting on pure emotion here. Action should be driven by emotion or shouldn't be driven by emotion, rather. It should be driven by a biblically informed sense of responsibility, and I chose that very, very carefully. A biblically informed sense of responsibility. Before I get into that application, though, what does that mean? Not everything, again, is our biblical responsibility. We aren't called to be savior of the world. Again, that job is taken. But we are called to be responsible for what God has commanded us to do in his word. And if you want a summary, you have no better summary of what happens in Matthew 22. We're called to love God with all our hearts, souls, mind, and strength. And we are called to love others as much as we love ourselves. And whatever situation you're in, that's what, exactly what Jesus is saying right now. Yeah, you guys are tired and hungry? Cool. So are they. Love them as much as you love yourself right now. You give them something to eat. We are called to sacrificially love others. When we see a need, we're moved to compassion. We need to own it, church. We need to be responsible for what we can do to love each other well, especially those in need. And I'm going to give us two practical ways that we can do that. First, we meet physical needs as we are able. This time of year always highlights physical needs of families, right? It highlights those lavish Thanksgiving dinners that some people just can't put on or maybe they don't have food at all. It highlights Christmas where we're supposed to buy each other presents and maybe there's no money to buy each other presents or maybe there's no family to celebrate Christmas with. This time of year highlights all of that. And they're right here in our town. Every year I get a letter from the school, pages and pages and pages of people, school families that need help. They send them to all the churches. My brother's place feeds families all year round, but particularly in this time of year, and they're doing it one more time with their Thanksgiving and their Christmas holiday food drive and gift cards. Talk to Alyssa, talk to Doreen. Church, you give them something to eat. But secondly, and probably more importantly, this parallels and highlights the spiritual responsibility that we have. Above the physical needs, because guess what? These 10,000 people that Jesus is soon going to miraculously feed are going to be hungry tomorrow. Physical needs are temporary. 
Right? You're going to be full one day. You're going to be hungry the next. People need the physical bread, but also the spiritual bread that sustains our souls, the bread of life. And how do we meet spiritual needs? It's the first and the greatest example, of course, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Giving people the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Restoring someone who's separated from God because of their sin and, and uniting them with God through their faith and understanding that they're separated from God and understanding who Jesus is, what he did, and why it matters and understanding that they can be reconciled to God through faith. That's the biggest spiritual need, the biggest need that any human being has on the planet Earth. And church, we have that. We have that. We need to be meeting that. We need to be communicating that. We can meet all the physical needs in the world, but the ultimate need is not physical, it's spiritual. We've got to remember that. Our only hope of avoiding the eternal wrath of God is to accept the gift of what he's done for us in his son, Jesus Christ, by faith. And then the power of Jesus, and that power alone then, lives in us, propels us to live for his glory, and Jesus is the ultimate example of that. Let's land this plane. Look at verse 17 in Matthew 14. He says, they said to him, after, of course, Jesus confronts them, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. A familiar miracle. And let's just say that from the start. Yes, we believe this really happened. This isn't an allegory. This isn't a metaphor. This is an event that we believe really happened. And if you're here this morning and you're struggling with believability and miracles, I feel that. Thank you for coming. But yes, we're going to say that this actually happened. We've got to deal with one assumption, right? Because everybody knows that miracles are scientifically impossible, right? You can't, this is impossible. You can't do this. This is scientifically impossible. Therefore, it's false. Well, no, not really. Because if you're dealing with God, then anything is possible. That's what we're talking about here. If you're dealing with the creator of the world, then God can do what he wants. We don't deny what David Hume and all of his cronies ever since then were all excited about, that, that nature has an established order. I mean, look at everything. You just can't make, you know, a couple fish be 70,000 fish. You just can't do it. That's not how nature works. I get it. I agree with you. William Lane Craig said it well. God can make exceptions to the general order of things when he deems it important. Yeah, we know. Science has proved yeah, miracles are impossible. Good, but we're dealing with the God who created this whole thing and he can do what he wants with his creation. That's the point. That's why we agree that miracles exist. If God exists, miracles exist. That's the point. If God exists, miracles have to exist. If you're a Christian and you believe in God, the God that's in here, you have to believe in miracles because that's the God of the Bible. That's what we've got to understand, right? There are several reasons why Jesus did miracles, but one of them was to prove he was God. This is a miracle. So we, un we unpack this. Mark's account tells us that it was Jesus who first set the disciples out in the crowd on a little food inventory mission. Guys, go see what we got, right? 
and they come back. Okay, boss, here's what we have. We've got a Lunchable <laughs> from an eight-year-old kid. That's, that's what we've got. John tells us that they found one kid with five loaves and two fish. Matthew tells us that they report the results of their little food survey to Jesus, and they're like, this is it. This is what we got. And Jesus simply tells them, bring them here to me. Or if you're rolling King James this morning, bring them hither. Bring them to me. He has the people sit down. He takes the loaves and the fish and offers what was probably a traditional Jewish blessing. He's going to bless this food just like he would bless a feast. He's going to say a traditional Jewish blessing, lifting it up to God the Father who provides all things in thankfulness. And somehow the miraculous power of God then takes that meager offering and he feeds over 10,000 people with what the little boy had. You'd think that such a public miracle of this scope and this magnitude would generate a humongous reaction. Matthew doesn't go into that. He just kind of moves on then to what happened next. Next thing in the travel log, right? Jesus is going to walk on the water next week. But once again, we have other accounts that tell us different things, different color, different flavors of what's going on here. John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 Here's the reaction of the people. So they gathered them up. They filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet, capital P, who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Here's what happened. When the people realized that this miracle happened right there in front of them, they lost their minds. And they said, this indeed is the Messiah. Who else could do this? This is indeed God in the flesh. I, it, yeah, it really kind of, I struggle when people say that, that the Bible never claims that Jesus was, was God, but he, <laughs> read this. The people knew that he was God because of what he did. That's why he did the miracles. That's why you can't throw out the miracles. We need the miracles. They realized this is nothing short of the power, at, uh, power of God at work in their midst right then and there. I think of uh, Peter and the miracle in the fishing boat, right? When Jesus then, after uh, fishing all night and catching nothing, and then Jesus then says, put it down this side. They catch this whole huge haul of fish, and then Peter just freaks out. And just says, get away from me. I am a sinful man. Because he knows that he's in the presence of God himself. That's what's going on here. People know that they're in the presence of God himself. And what started all this? Did Jesus orchestrate all this to stage a, a public performance to really build his platform? We know that's not true. There was no meeting, right? Okay, guys, on Thursday, I know it's been a tough slog. We're going to go straight over to Bethsaida. Here's what I think is going to happen. I think, let's make it a big public deal. You know, okay, here we go, everybody. We're getting on the boat. Get on the boat so people can see, and then everybody's going to then probably, hopefully, run over there and see us and be waiting for us, and then, and then you wait to see what I'm going to do. Then we're going to take this platform nationwide. <laughs> then I'm going to build my kingdom. It didn't happen, did it? He didn't even want to, he didn't even want to see people, did he? He wanted to get away. 
He goes to the other side of the lake to be away from people. This is not a public spectacle. This is something that happened because of the compassion, the supernatural compassion that's in Jesus' heart. What started all this? The compassion of Jesus. That action that was driven by his responsibility that he saw that, yes, I do need to feed these people. We need to feed these people. And in that, we see the unleashing of the power of God. So here's the big idea that hopefully ties all this together this morning. The power of God is revealed when his disciples take responsibility. The power of God is revealed when his disciples take responsibility. Again, what's the point of the miracle? To feed 10,000 people? Sure, that's a result. But as mentioned, they're going to be hungry again the next day. And Jesus never missed the chance to teach his disciples. This is for them as much as it is for the crowd. He's teaching them by example. He says, guys, we're all, we're all completely strung out here. We're going and going and going. Watch what I do. Watch the compassion that I have. Watch the ownership that I take of this situation. Despite your complete lack of ownership of the situation, watch what I do. Jesus never missed the chance to teach his disciples. He's teaching them to own it. He took responsibility for the situation, and he challenged them to, as well, you give them something to eat. To take seriously, church, who we are as disciples of Jesus Christ. Where do we need to own our responsibility as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Especially coming up in the holiday season, church, Maybe we need to pray for more compassion. That's always a, a good start. Sometimes church sharing true feelings, I'm shocked by the lack of compassion that I have. We need compassion. It doesn't come from ourselves. We need to pray for it. So if you're one of those people that struggles with, I need to get involved in this situation, pray for compassion. And then act on that compassion. Maybe you see your identity as a disciple of Jesus Christ is not just something for you to own your personal edification. Like, what am I really doing here as a follower of Jesus Christ? Is this just for me to be holy, to be edified, to be sanctified, to grow? Sometimes our American churchianity can take this, this, this discipleship that we're on and make it all about us. Here's what I need to do. Here's how I need to grow. Here's how me, 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 me. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Jesus says, own your responsibility as a disciple. It is not just about you. Sorry, welcome to Highlands Bible Church. It's not just about you. Jesus, that's what Jesus is teaching these disciples this morning. Church, we have the bread of life. We have the gospel. We have the hope of the world. We also have hearts that are full of compassion because of the compassion that God showed on us in Jesus Christ. We have to own this, church. And when we do, we will be surprised at the power of God that is working within us. The power of God is revealed when his disciples take responsibility. Let's pray. Father, as we think about this, this is a challenging word, Lord. It's a very familiar miracle, but Lord, what you have done in teaching your disciples and hopefully by your grace and through your spirit teaching us this morning that it is not just about us. Lord, that, that we have a responsibility to feed people, to care for their physical needs, but also, of course, to care for their spiritual needs. Lord, 
would you maybe particularly, as, as we're right on the edge of this Thanksgiving and, and Christmas season, would you grant us more compassion? Would you grant us eyes to see the needs that are around us, that are physical, that we could meet? Lord, would you, in your spirit's power and conviction, like the disciples, stare into our souls and say, you give them something to eat. This is your responsibility, Lord. Help us to see where we can. Protect us from taking too much on. Lord, we can't save everyone. We can't feed everyone. But bring people into our circle, Lord, and generate that compassion within us to help the physical needs. But, but over and above that, Lord, let us be burdened. Give us compassion for the lost. Give us compassion for the spiritually lost and what we can do in the gospel of Jesus Christ in telling them that there's a king and that we can be reconciled to him through the sacrifice of his son. Help us to do that well, Lord, as, as we move closer to the Christmas season when we celebrate Advent, when we celebrate the incarnation and Jesus coming on a rescue mission as a baby. Lord, drive it into us, our sense of responsibility as a disciple, and let us also remember that it is worth it for what you call us to, you equip us for, and you do so for our good and your glory. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.